welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. We have a very special guest today. We have Al Snow. He's an American professional wrestler and actor. He's best known as one of the co-owners of Ohio Valley Wrestling, as a former wrestler for Smoky Mountain Wrestling, Extreme Championship Wrestling, ECW, and World Wrestling Entertainment, WWE. And Al's also held various backstage positions for professional wrestling promotions. He worked as a road agent for Total Nonstop Action Wrestling and has uh, owned and then co-owned uh, Ohio Valley Wrestling since 2018. His experiences as an owner and the story of Ohio Valley Wrestling are featured in the hit Netflix documentary series, Wrestlers. Al, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for coming on, man. Well, thank you guys very much. It's a pleasure to be, uh, be uh, with you today. Absolutely, Absolutely man. Yeah. So I want to, before we get into your career, I actually kind of want to start out, I guess, from where we were now, you know, from the, let's say, past couple of years and uh -huh. going into going into the series and going into sort of what wrestlers means to people and also kind of what it's meant to me because I was also really touched by it. I want to actually start talking about you becoming an owner and what that's like. So Eric Bischoff, a show, you know, whose show you've just recently been on, he would say, yeah. when you're owning a wrestling company, you kind of have three options, right? You could be better than, worse than, or different than. And so Eric also often criticizes somebody like Tony Khan and then um, uh, Billy Corgan with the NWA. And he says, well, it's kind of like a van vanity project for them. But for you, it seemed to have been extremely different. So can we talk a little bit about how Ohio Valley Wrestling was going to be different then, which is what I'm assuming you were going yeah. for, what you wanted that different than to actually look like and why it actually wasn't the vanity project for you? Well, it it, it uh, isn't. A, it's definitely not a vanity project for me because this basically has been my life. Uh, professional wrestling has been my life for the last 41 years. And, um, you know, uh, I kind of a, a while back determined that probably my legacy that I'll leave behind in the, uh, the wrestling business was more going to be the number of people that I've taught and assisted to help them in achieving their dreams in the pursuit of being a professional wrestler. So, um, the plan wasn't ever, I never imagined in a million years I would buy a wrestling company because I knew the landscape of the business was going, is such a, a dramatic challenge nowadays from what it used to be. It's not impossible, but it, it's definitely a lot more of a uphill climb, uh, mm -hmm. so to speak, uh, for a number of reasons that we can get into, but um but I, at the time, uh, uh, as I'm sure you can tell, uh, even though I come across as being very stoic and don't react much to in just about anything, uh, I am a very passionate person and very driven and uh, very passionate about uh, certain standards that I hold in professional wrestling. And, uh, you know, I, it bothered me going around and traveling the independent circuit and seeing uh, young men and women who, uh, you know, quite honestly, uh, were not taking it seriously as an actual profession. The first part of professional is profession. That it, it's 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 a uh, an avocation. It, it's an occupation. You know, it's not just a a hobby or an interest. Uh, and there were no there were no standards. The you know there were. It, this business is without a question or doubt a as all entertainment business is cosmetic and aesthetically driven uh you know 
the the heart of what we do is to uh, allow you to believe that you're actually watching uh, a competitive prize fighting situation. And in order for that to happen, that belief has to start the minute you walk through the curtain. So, you, you know, I, I don't care, you know, the guy doesn't have, the guy or the girl doesn't have to be a bodybuilder, but you've got to present yourself in a manner that where I believe that you make your living competitively whipping somebody's ass. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, if I'm the average person and I look at you and I go, well, hell, I could probably beat that guy up it's going to be hard to motivate someone to want to pay to to see that person not to mention then this was the other side of the coin uh regardless of what you think of professional wrestling oh that's fake and all of that that's you know well congratulations you've finally assembled all the clues and figured that mystery out um <laughs> it quite honestly is a very intensely athletic pursuit uh, and you have to be in a very high level of physical conditioning to be able to really respectfully and safely do it, not only for your opponent, but for yourself to protect yourself. Because regardless of what we all, we don't like to focus on it, but uh, every time uh, a young man or woman step in the ring, there's a percentage of a chance that they could suffer a life altering or life ending injury. And that ultimately a young man who had been poorly trained or not hardly trained at all in Oklahoma um, that year, I think it was 2018, um, maybe mm -hmm. 2017. Uh, this is in a state that has a very strict athletic commission, uh, had participated in a wrestling show and uh, got injured, uh, you know, had brain swelling and was in a coma. And ultimately they had to pull the plug on him. He died. And I just, you know, uh, was speaking to my wife, who is a licensed masseuse, and it struck me as insulting that uh, my wife, uh, in order to be a licensed masseuse anywhere in the country, uh, the same with any licensed occupation, um, you know, you have to attend a uh, accredited school, be taught by a state approved and accredited teacher. You have to complete a certain number of hours of education, and then you have to complete a certain number of hours of residencies, hands-on, supervised experience before you can even take a test and wow. be licensed for that occupation. Well, to be a professional wrestler with any commissioned uh, state, the best you can hope for is that you got to take a blood, some blood work and a physical, and wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. I spent, I sent my money in, and I've got a license. And I think that's insulting. And um, we as wrestlers are such whores that we don't have standards anymore in regards to training where we used to. Uh, it was very difficult to begin, to begin with to get into this business because it was so well protected. And the way it was well protected was just not anybody was allowed to get in it. And if you did happen to find somebody who was willing to train you, it was like an apprenticeship because they basically now put their name on you. And if you failed or did anything that hurt business, well, that guy suffered the consequences. His livelihood was affected. So that's all gone now and it doesn't exist. So, uh, you know, I went, uh, contacted several commissions with, uh, with a suggestion of 
creating a at least a training license and a certain standardized approach yeah. to training and um, having certain standards that you know, before you and and having approval by the state commission to be a training center and be a trainer that you would have to pass certain standards to do that. And nobody would take me up on it. I even uh, went to the board of directors for the uh, athletic commission here in Kentucky personally. And that was where I'd met my uh, initial partner, Chad Miller, um, uh, who was, is very, you know, motivated to help sports and athletes and such uh, very heavily involved in baseball uh, prior and now again um, owned the Louisville Slugger Science Center which was it's an incredibly hmm. uh, just amazing place with such high level technology all in an effort to improve the performance of athletes you know in their their given field and uh, that he and I got together and you know at the time I was kind of hanging around OVW with Danny Davis because just being there and you know on my free time and then one thing led to another and Danny's like, Hey, would you like to buy a wrestling company? I was like, hell no. And then, <laughs> then Chad kind of got with me and talked me into it. And, you know, I thought, well, okay, well, this might be an opportunity to, you know, not reinvent the wheel, um, but to take it back and, and, and let it be round again and actually have a way that I could um, impact uh, the, the wrestling business to some degree by, you know, turning out uh, a higher quality of uh, performer. So yeah. that was it. Wow. No, that's smart, right? I mean, if, if you own the company, then the people that you vet and let wrestle, obviously you're going to at least be in charge of what kind of person you're going to accept, right? Like what kind of training they need to go through in order for you to think, okay, this person's good to wrestle. This is, this is a quality person. Yes. And, 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 you know, there are um, certain steps and certain details that I take a person through from the very beginning uh, that nobody really does anymore, you know? Um, and the other, the other thing that we, uh, that I was able to accomplish with, with Chad and myself took us a couple years, almost two and a half years, but we're actually uh, the only, uh, training center or wrestling, you know, um, academy that is actually accredited as a trade school by the state office of proprietary education. And we don't just teach, uh, the in-ring skills. I felt that it was very important that, um, the students not, not just because it improves their performance in the ring, if they better understand the whole picture, but it also gives them skills that, when the day comes and it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when that day comes their in-ring career ends they now have abilities and tools that they could still be an asset to the wrestling business um hmm. on the production side of things so we teach you know um you know i teach a history class that to you know uh the, the students um to help them better understand the business itself uh we teach live event management camera operation sound, lighting, uh, editing, uh, uh, former WWE guy, uh, Simon Dean, uh, Mike Bucci, uh, is a president at one of the, at the fifth bank here. He comes in and teaches a personal finance class because there's nothing worse than, you know, these athletes getting an opportunity, making 
money, life-changing money, and then not having the financial wisdom or knowledge to really make use of it and be able to keep the majority of it instead of just flittering it away and thinking that it's going to last forever. And at the end of their careers, they're, you know, left um, just adrift and destitute. So, so we try to teach all of that in addition to the in-ring skills as well, so that we really have a well-rounded performer. Um, Wow. Damn. Yeah. I love that so much. And, you know, just thinking about it, since you mentioned before about this being your legacy, I wonder, and, and, you know, maybe this is kind of like a little bit of a difficult question, but I wonder if there was a part of you when you did leave the WWE, where there was sort of a sense of disenchantment where you thought, okay, if it's not going to be this, it's going to be, ha- it's going to have to be something else. Or is now the thinking like, you know, I'm so kind of far away or so far removed from that part of my life that this was just going to be completely different and has nothing to do with the sense of wanting to kind of negate or made, make up for what I was lacking in my career. Well, no, not at all. I don't have any disenchantment at all. I, I, uh, um, you know, I acknowledge mistakes that I've made and opportunities that I had missed. Um, but who hasn't done that? And, uh, you know, I have no regrets. I've been blessed to get to do what I've loved to do for 41 years. Nobody's yet to figure out. I have no clue what I'm doing. So, Until that happens, I'll just merrily keep going. I, I by no means it was this uh, motivated by any type of disenfranch- disenchantment or or being disenfranchised with WWE. I didn't unlike. I just had this conversation not that long ago with a young guy. You know, we were sitting there. We were um, uh, doing. Um, I do tape review where I review the television show from the week prior and. Mm-hmm. Explain what they could have done, should have done, and watch it at the same time with me, you know. And I will ask questions: Why did you do this? What were you hoping to do? What, uh, here's why it wouldn't work. Here's why it did work, and you know, so that they better understand. Uh, and I was explaining. Uh, we were having a conversation. I was explaining how you know I, I'd been wrestling for probably 12, 13 years before I finally got a, when I got contracted to go to WWF. And uh, one of the kids is like, oh, my God, it took you that long to get signed. I was like, I, I don't, it was really signed. I signed a contract. He goes, it took you 13 years. God, I hope it doesn't take me 13 years. I go, you don't <laughs> understand. I didn't get in the business like every, you all do now to get signed anywhere. I, that was never the intention. I got into the wrestling business to perform, to wrestle for a living. That's what I did. And for 12 and 13 years, I got to do that. Sometimes I made more money. Sometimes I made less. It just depended on where I was doing it at and who I was doing it with. I said, but it was never a goal just to go to WWF. WWF is just another place to work. And I said, where you, for you, the goal is the destination, period. And I said, you really, I promise you, you're not going to be happy once you get there. You're, it's not going to be what you think it is because you have this romanticized view of life in WWE. And I said, it's far from what you think it is. In fact, it is going to be probably the toughest and most challenging thing for you to do because you have no days off. It's you're going to play poker and chess with every other individual in that locker room and with the company itself, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, where you're going to have to stay two moves ahead of every single other person in that company. And as you go up the ladder, the stakes are going to get higher. And that pressure 
is going to get more and you're going to have to be even more astute at playing that game. I said, because you go out there for 30 seconds and there's somebody backstage who wants that 30 seconds you got this week. And they think that they were just more deserving of it. And they're going to do everything they can next week to take it from you. And you're going to have to do everything you can to keep it. I said, and that's going to be your life and you're yep. not going to be happy. So I said, you might want to focus more on just enjoying the trip as opposed to just only enjoying the destination. Wow. I love that. Such great insight. And then just thinking about this now in the context of your career and just for our audience, uh, you started out in the WWF at about 1995 where you were Avatar and then that mor morphed into Leaf Cassidy with Marty Jannetty and the New Rockers. So do you think that at that particular point that you were, uh, you reached the level of maturity where the thinking was, okay, you know, this is another destination. I kind of have to make the best of this. Let's see where this goes. Or was there a part of you that was relatively upset with the fact that you were these characters thinking, well, you know, maybe I did want something more out of this experience because at the end of the day, this is the mecca of professional wrestling. Well, at the time, uh, I mistakenly was, you know, upset. I was, and that, that you know, resentment actually worked in my favor. But mm. it was, you know, the Avatar and Leaf Cassidy, all those were, were just simply, uh, you know, personas or, or gimmicks or characters that were, you know, they were trying to find for me instead of me trying to find my own voice they were trying to find a voice for me that i could they could then help other you know market me we that's the biggest thing i guess that everyone who thinks they know wrestling today uh and have no clue what the real art of it is uh that's the biggest mistake and and i've I was taught what it was. I did it. I lost track of it, drank the Kool-Aid and believed that it had changed. And then at the end, of, and then I reacquainted myself with it and now try to communicate that to all of the younger talent. And that is, there is only one singular thing that is not real in professional wrestling. That's it. I see it's, in 1900, it was that was the one thing that was not real or fake. In 1930, it was the one thing that was not real or fake. 1965, 1976, 2023, it's never changed. And that is just that the outcome is already predetermined. And in 1900, and in 2023, an audience bought a ticket to believe that that outcome was not predetermined and that the win and loss had a consequence to it. And in 2023, the majority, the general audience, not wrestling fans, the ones who go to websites and read newsletters and want to find out all the dirt about what's going on backstage, not them, the actual real Mr. and Mrs. Walmart buy a ticket to be convinced, if nothing else, during the time that they're watching it, that that win and loss is preeminent and that mm -hmm. it matters. And your intent from the moment you walk up through that curtain and the moment you walk back and everything in between is that you're going out there to win and not lose. The belief in wrestling is nowadays that it's 
changed. I'm old school, which means they all have now somehow reinvented the wheel. It's no longer round. It's no octagonal, hexagonal. Now there's something else that's fake. Now the audience doesn't want to believe in your intent. They want to believe in your moves, the physical moves you do. That, let's face it, if you've never been in a ring, you're never going to relate to what I do physically. You've never been slammed. You're never going to know how that feels. Mm -hmm. You've never taken a turnbuckle. You're never going to know how that feels. You've never even hit the ropes. You don't realize how much those ropes actually hurt. Those steel cables that are in the rope hurt when you hit them. Um, You think the ring is a trampoline or a mattress, and it hurts every single time you make contact with it. In fact, people aren't aware. There was a a university in Connecticut that did a physics study uh, where they were able to determine that every time a professional wrestler strikes the mat, uh, they at least at the minimum have a, a equate the force and the impact to about a 22 to a 25 mile per hour car accident. Wow. So, wow. You know, Damn. you're never going to appreciate that. You're never going to understand it because you don't feel it. But what's going to motivate you to watch is the one thing that we used to sell. And that was who the wrestler was. And then why are they doing it? What's the intent behind anything they do to their opponent? And then what's the consequence of anything that's done to them? That's not being sold anymore. Now everyone tries to sell you on what they do and not why they do it. And that's why you're now seeing a greater and greater and drastic amount of injuries is because the talent have so convinced themselves that the audience is impressed with and um, buy a ticket solely to see simply what they do, not why they do it. And we've got, you know, that's the one thing if you want me to, you know, if you want what makes OVW different is that I am trying to communicate that to the talent every single day. Uh, I'm trying to get them to learn the art of working an audience and working a wrestling match, not perform one or uh, just simply wrestle. There's a big difference. The term work, actual term work is a con. It's a sham. It's to make one person believe a lie. And I just explained there's only one lie in wrestling. Mm -hmm. And that is, is that I'm going to the ring to try to actually use whatever I do to win. You want to believe in that lie. And I'm going to do everything I can to help you believe in that lie. That's a work. A worker is a con man, a person who can make you believe something that's not real. Wrestler, workers make money. Wrestlers don't. And we now have a business full of wrestlers. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, anyone off the street can put on a pair of boots and a pair of trunks and call themselves a wrestler, a professional wrestler. Not everyone can go and put on a pair of boots and a pair of trunks and call themselves a worker. And that's the difference. I try to reacquaint and reeducate talent into that as opposed to doing what's popular and where everyone is now convinced themselves is the right way to do it. And that's go out and just perform or wrestle. And that's that way we oh sorry. And that way we actually get to tell stories. That's why we, I can literally on TV 
tell you a story that you can follow and relate because you know who the person is in the ring and you know why they're doing what they're doing. And now the story that I've told increases the gravity and the consequence of that win and loss for you. Yeah. And like when you're watching, when I was watching uh, wrestlers, right. And you see the, the relationship between Haley J and her mom, right. You could feel that you could feel the realness of that intent. Right. And, and the work yeah. that's taken place over there. And I, I, I actually get more what you're saying now. Cause like sometimes, Oh, so one of my friends, he's, he's a huge WWE fan. So he'll watch, um, he was watching this match. I forgot. It was like Austin theory and somebody else. I, I, I can't remember. And then I remember like the actual uh, work that they were doing wasn't that interesting, but yeah, like I did see that focus on the moves and don't get me wrong. It looked cool, but I'm like, I'm starting to see your point as you're talking about it. Like, yeah, where's that kind of the drama making you feel like what's happening is real. Moves are amazing. The athleticism is incredible. Okay. Yeah. We have more athleticism in the wrestling business than we've ever had in its entire history. Guys are just incredible. I mean, honestly even at any point in history of the wrestling business the athletes you could stack up uh, and because you got to really think about the amount of spatial awareness coordination and timing and control and distance and footwork that go into doing any of this and you have like a 300 pound guy who literally is moving with the adeptness of a 160, 75 pound gymnast and is doing all of this and not physically touching his opponent. That's it's, it's incredible. Mm. That's not what sells tickets. It just doesn't because if that were the case, like let's face, I mean, Mortal Kombat, the, the graphics on Mortal, you know, video games like Mortal Kombat. Amazing. Right. Uh Right incredible but you're not playing actually playing the game you're not directly involved in playing the game you're just sitting there waiting your turn how long does it take for you to get bored of watching it pretty quick Mm -hmm. same goes with professional wrestling if you can't relate and believe in who the person is in the ring and if they're not communicating to you that they're there's something at stake that they're whatever they're doing physically is to win and not lose it's just a bunch of moves. They look cool, yeah, really yeah. awesome, you know, but they don't they don't elicit any kind of emotion. In right, and then yeah, and then and and then so sticking with your character and the trajectory of the character development of your career. So you go yeah. from Avatar to obviously leave Cassidy, and now you're out of the WWF, the WWF, WWE, whatever. And by 1996, right? So how yeah. is it that now you're in Extreme Championship Wrestling, you know Paul Heyman's company, and now you've decided, okay, we have to do something else with this character. I have to do something that makes the fans feel like they can connect to me, they understand me, they get my intention. Maybe they even identify with my intention. Obviously, now you come up with Head, and you know the person that we know as Al Snow. How did that all happen? And how did you decide, okay, I can't do that anymore. The Leaf Cassidy's of the world, they're gone. They have to die. Well, um, you know, I um, when I was in WWF at that time, I was, you know, getting frustrated because, uh, and it was my own fault because I was doing the one mistake that everybody does. And that was, I was pointing the finger at everybody else and not taking responsibility for myself. Mm. And, you know, uh, um, I knew that I had to leave and go somewhere else. Uh, and in terms of 
professional wrestling, get myself over, sell myself. Uh, because if I stayed, I'd always, they would always have that view and that perception of me and I would never elevate because, you know, that I would, I've already had a preconceived notion for that company. So I needed to get out and sell myself back to them or to someone else so that I could and reinvent myself. Um, and, uh, so I, you know, I had a two year contract at that time and I put in for my release. I tried to quit and uh they wouldn't let me they rolled my contract they had an option to roll my contract over and they did and i was like that just made, made my attitude even worse and um <coughs> apologize uh and uh so uh at the time i was unaware and all of us were unaware that, that paul was paul Heyman was actually really working closely with Vince McMahon and uh working together with him and Chris Candido, God bless him, he was a really good friend of mine, was kind of like Paul's right-hand guy at the time. Chris had went through a very similar type of situation with WWF where he got frustrated. You know, they were trying to come up with something to sell him persona-wise. And um, he finally left on his own and went back to, went to ECW, and that's how he became Paul's right-hand guy. So... They had showed up at Raw that day, and I was in the stands. I began talking to Chris. Chris went to Paul Heyman. Paul Heyman went to Bruce Pritchard, who was at the time was in charge of talent relations. And they, you know, basically put me on loan to ECW. And Paul had no plans, had no intentions of doing anything. And uh, I knew I had to take it upon myself. And uh, I figured if there were fans because there were existing fans in ECW that already knew of me as Al Snow for years uh, from the tape trading days, the hardcore wrestling fans, you know, would end the newsletters. And so I figured if anyone knew me from, and knew how long I'd been doing it and that I still wasn't what I considered successful, even though I actually were now on, I look back and I realized just how successful I actually was. Um, they would think I would, they would figure that at some point, maybe I'd crack, I'd have a nervous breakdown or something. If you were a WWF fan and you were just a casual fan, you saw me as Leaf Cassidy, you know, anybody that happy had to be crazy. So, mm -hmm. uh, so I started trying to demonstrate that I had, had a nervous breakdown and um, tried all kinds of different things. Nothing really ever communicated to the audience. Uh, nothing really worked. Uh, and I was reading a book on abnormal psychology and there was a case study of about a woman who had schizophrenia and she had what they called transference disorder, which was where she thought the inanimate objects that she was hearing voices from or just hearing voices, they were crazy, not her. Hmm. And uh, so I thought, well, that's fascinating. And I found a styrofoam head in the back in the, in uh, where they used to uh, build the parade floats for the Mummers Day Parade in Philadelphia. It was part of the building the uh, ECW arena was in. And uh, I found a from head, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to start carrying the head with me, treating it as if it's a real person and talking to it, interacting with it. And, uh, and you know, uh, I just started doing it, and it started immediately people were picking up on it and understanding it and 
you know, I would wrestle and I would lose. And then when I lose, I'd blame the head and I'd argue and fight and I'd basically beat it up. And the crowd would just, they'd cheer me the whole match until then they'd start booing me because I was doing that. And Paul would say, I hate your manager. You know, I don't, I don't, what, what are you doing? But he never told me not to do it. He just let me do my own thing. And then it just kept getting more and more and more uh, what we call over with the audience. And uh, uh, I was wor working with, uh, I can't remember Paul's name, but he used to be with the Orient Express. Uh, we were, we were, Paul was finally starting to get on board with it. And he would, he was going to have me run out and make a save with Sandman at the arena. And I think, cause he was trying to give, you know, give me a little bit of a rub from the Sandman or something like that. And uh, that, that night I'm working with Paul in one of the undercard matches and he goes to give me a gourd buster, which is like a suplex and you drop the person face first. My arm got cut up underneath me and I just completely dislocated my shoulder. It was uh, severely out. Um, couldn't have been, it would have been, you know, it was two weeks away from November to remember uh, the pay-per-view, um, you know, couldn't have happened at a worse time and at a best time. Because what happened was, because I had dislocated my shoulder, I couldn't wrestle on the pay-per-view, and but turned out to be the best thing that ever happened because Chris, again, God bless him, went politic to have me do a vignette in the locker room where I'm basically arguing with the head for stooging me off that, you know, I'd gotten hurt, that they had went and tattled, and everyone else in the locker room was completely normal. And the only thing that was weird was me arguing with the head like we were partners and that they had told on me. And the next day, that was the big thing that got the biggest fan response on the whole show was me and that vignette. And that was what really kicked it off was mm -hmm. uh, that vignette. And then, you know, Paul getting the styrofoam heads in the audience and but, and then constantly coming up, you know, always coming to me and saying, we need, I want you to film another vignette. I want you to film another vignette. I want you to do another promo. I want you, you know, and people, it worked. And the real, the reason it worked, I think, I believe is because uh, the, the thing, the characters or gimmicks that you see that are really successful are not characters or gimmicks. They are an aspect of that person that they just turn the volume up really loud. Mm. Vince McMahon is really what you see on TV is Vince times a thousand. Right. Steve Austin is really Steve Austin times a thousand, you know, that in, and I now understand this, that it, I was able to develop the most valuable thing because it, when I look back where I had my greatest successes and my runs, or when people could describe me in a sentence or less mm. to each other. And, you know, cause now as Al Snow and Head, hey, there's this, you could turn to your friends and go, hey, there's this lunatic on wrestling and he carries a head and you never know what he's gonna do. You know, he talks to the head, he thinks it's real. You know what I mean? You've mm. just now, a, a person who's never watched me or never now has a question and curiosity, who's this guy, what's he doing, blah, 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 you know? And that's what really makes a person a star, no matter what walk of, you know, what profession they're, they're following, you know, and the fact that not only that you could describe me, you believed in me 
if you would have went back and pulled 10 out 10 people during that time, nine out of 10 would swear I was medically insane, mm -hmm. clinically out of my mind, you know, and that being able to believe in who I was allowed them to believe in anything I did. I mean, let's face it. I made a lot of money making people believe I could knock another human being unconscious with a plastic head. Mm -hmm. Can't do it. I can't right. even knock a toddler out. I've tried that all that does is the kid falls <laughs> down and gets up crying. And then the parents want to call the cops, you know, it's like, Hey, just calm down. Right, right. But, <laughs> but I, but people believed it, you know, and, uh, and that, that ultimately was why it was successful was because it was really me, my frustration and my uh, resentment and that I had, which was all misplaced. It was all my own fault, you know, but it gave me an outlet to say in a very, sarcastic and smart allocate way in an entertaining fashion a, a release by t directing it at the head and having and speaking uh, you know my my own inner emotions so that the right. audience believed it you know and, and, and i would even add to that that that's probably the part of you that people identified with so if we look at the wwf at the time and you have let's say a dimension like a scale and you look at on the one hand you have the hero right so at the time it was Shawn michaels right you have like this sort of really good looking guy uh very charismatic charismatic very athletic and if for people who don't know i mean Shawn michaels was already getting booed in the late 90s so when he was wrestling psycho sid at survivor series i mean essentially sid was considered to be the good guy so if you go back to this dimension and you look at okay what the hero was supposed to be what vince mcmahon was pumping out at the time and then you look at let's say what the anti-hero is like let's say somewhere in the middle and you have let's say a stone cold who's not necessarily uh so he's not necessarily the antithesis of Shawn michaels but he's not really what he was but then you have even further down the line right you have somebody like al snow and you have somebody who's let's say who has a psychiatric a severe psychiatric illness and i think for a lot of people to see that and to say to themselves you know what i have no family members like him uh maybe i'm suffering with some of these similar or you know kind of borderline same things mm -hmm. and so for people to see that and be able to say to themselves okay here's this venue here's this context where somebody like an al snow can succeed where you know what yeah he is blaming other people but kind of fuck that you know i understand why he thinks that way because yeah it's Shawn michaels and everybody else who looks like him who kind of get over in society these are the people who become the champions people with like al snow who let's say maybe borderline schizophrenic who have that diagnosis they never get to the top so i think for people seeing that they're able to say to themselves like oh my god man i not only have these same frustrations but because i have these same issues and seeing something like that represented that this to me is the ultimate anti-hero this is like stone cold even turned up a notch in times 10 maybe i mean uh you know i i think at the time uh and you know i was given plenty of opportunities you know and at the and i just mistakenly didn't see them for what they really were you know and now if I knew then what I know now and had the understanding then that I do now, my career would have been completely different, even though I had a, an amazing run with WWE, WWF and WWE. I had a, I had a really successful run. You know, I was, I was without a question or doubt when I really, even, you know, at times I would kind of like, you know, I'd look back and be like, well, you know, I could have done this, could have done that. And which I could have, I mean, and it would have been a completely different perception of my career by the, by fans. But um, I look back and I go, God bless. I really, it was, I, I did, did well. And I was on TV every single week for years. I mean, 
the, I was on Raw on a Monday. I was on SmackDown every Tuesday, and I was on Sunday Night Eat almost every Sunday. Mm-hmm. So three nights of the week, I was on television, you know. And then on top of that, you know, I then got the opportunity to be on Tough Enough for three very successful seasons, uh, you know, that allowed me to reach an even greater audience um, over and above outside of wrestling, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I I have no, you know, you know, uh, regrets. I do I have, you know, where I now make observations and go, ah, I could have, should have turned right. Uh, it would have, you know, I'd had a better road there, turned left. Sure. But I don't have any regrets and I certainly don't have any resentments or, you know, disenchantments. I, I think I had a hell of a run and it's brought me to where I'm at today, where I'm still blessed and get to do what I've gotten to do, you know, for as long as I've gotten to do it. And, you know, a large part of why we're having this conversation today is because of all of that exposure is what led to getting a once another once in a lifetime opportunity with yeah. this Netflix docu-series with wrestlers. You know, because of that exposure, there were executives in Netflix who recognized that I had some kind of an audience still that was present from all of those opportunities I had back in the day to build it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and, and, you know, to then be blessed to have a guy like uh, such an incredibly talented guy like Greg Whiteley and all of his production crew to come and, and create this amazing, uh, and, I'm, and I'm not saying this because it's, it's me being involved in it or OVW, but even if I'd have watched, you know, if they'd have done this, if Greg had went and performed his magic on the Monster Factory, you know, or, or the nightmare factory or any other wrestling organization, I would still say the same thing. It was, it's literally a masterpiece of storytelling and uh, uh, Greg has done such an amazing job with it. So, you know, I, I can't thank him enough. Uh, you know, you know, in fact, you know, Danny Cage and, and had uh, a very similar documentary that was done on the monster factory yeah. on Apple plus, And it literally came out right and and you know i didn't even know it was that it had been done and i didn't even know it was it was out until yeah, I it was a few months social... a few months before yours yeah yeah and i saw on social media you know he was say you know saying something about it i'm like but i swear to you like that was my biggest fear was that this would come out and no one would talk about it much like what happened with you know danny and the monster factory nobody i mean not even the wrestling community spoke about or acknowledge the existence of that docu-series on, you know, on Monster Factory. And I thought, God help me. I hope that does not happen with this. And thank God, you know, it, it didn't. You know, it, it, it's been so positively well received by everyone. And, and I think probably that's the biggest thing that I've, I'm been amazed by, because let's face it, I mean, social media is so, it, it's just human nature to be negative. And, you know, and, and, and the tr- one of the truest mantras ever spoken is misery loves company. So you've got lots of bored, miserable people that are looking to get, you know, a bit of dopamine by saying some negative remark about something on social media. And they know they're not going to face any repercussions, you know. And, uh, you know, and I expect it. I mean, I have no problem with it. I've lived, you know, my whole adult life in the in the public eye. So. I was prepared for it and it never came, 
everything I saw was all, you know, positive. Only negativity I saw was a few people were like, oh, this is so contrived and it's just another reality series. And I'm like, I wish it was contrived. When I'm sitting there watching Haley on camera, driving down the highway, texting, smoking and rolling a joint and smoking one all at the same time while she's driving the car. I'm like, God, I wish that was faked. I wish it was just done for the camera when I know it's her and I want to choke her, you know? So yeah, yeah, it's been incredible. Well, I got to ask, you know, this is something I was even wondering, you know, the last interview that we did, I was thinking, you know, after that series came out, what's it, what's it been like at the company? You know, I, I know it's been like really well received, but like, I imagine the shows must be like crazy packed and it's way different than what it was before. Well, it's not, not really. No, I mean, uh, it, 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 attendance on a consistent basis has been sold out every single week. Uh, but in regards to, um, you know, not, nothing else has really changed. I mean, gotcha. um, okay. you know, I'm, the pressure is, actually the pressure is more now to make sure that we can use this, uh, which really all it is is just a launching pad uh, because what it, the Netflix thing has given us is uh, that we were really desperately deemed was, was more of a broader awareness and relevancy uh, with the audience. And, that, and now it's up to us to make sure that everyone who shows up, or even if it's their first time, they haven't come for a few years, or they were a regular customer, they get a very consistent experience and always get what they expected in that they get a return on their investment of their time, money, and effort to come and watch the show live. And that's, that's, that's what I've always endeavored to do. And uh, we were, you know, I, 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 t- I told the talent themselves, I said, thank God this came out when it did. I said, mm-hmm. if it had come out a year ago or uh, even, you know, a six months ago, the talent themselves would not have been in a place to where we can really capitalize to its fullest extent, like we can't, they can now. And even now, like they're kind of, they, they're kind of getting a little comfortable and getting a little, you know, I gotta, I gotta yank a knot a few of their tails cause they're starting to stray off of what brought them to the dance. And now mm-hmm. they're not going to deliver to the audience what they're expecting. And, and now we're going to lose this, opportunity because the shine off of this is going to only last so long right and then it's just going to be plain old ovw again you know what i mean so we've got to capture that audience as much as we possibly can while we have this opportunity and give a consistent performance every single time that's the thing that that's what separates a real true star from just a, a great performer is that at the end of the day, like what made Reggie Jackson, Reggie Jackson, or what made Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan, wasn't that they could play great, you know, the sports that they were in, play them really well. It was that they could play them really well every single time. Mm -hmm. That's what separates a real star from, you know, bands, you know, Freddie Mercury was Freddie Mercury because you got that experience every time you saw Freddie Mercury. Not just at Live Aid, not just once. Every time you saw him in concert, you got that experience. And that's, that's, I need, I need all of them to step it up to be like that, to where they've got to 
you know, and I've got to always be mindful that I've got to write and produce the television show in a manner that gives that audience that experience every single time. And, and what I love so much about OVW is the long-term st- storytelling, which, I mean, you do see to some extent, I mean, with the WWE, you have that with the bloodline, but I mean, ultimately they're about two to three month feuds and then they kind of move on. So what I, going back to the concept of uh, different that, right? So what I love in particular is the Haley J storyline. So what was the thinking there in sort of in building it up and uh, getting the audience to identify it uh, with it? And then obviously having people kind of resent her and hate her for it, you know, and having people show up to see her get her ass kicked by her mom. So what was the sort of thinking behind it how did you guys think about it in uh in terms of uh what's it called what would actually appeal to people and then what did you or how did you consider then the ending to it or why did you think that was the right ending to it at the time uh well uh that's where do i start um (laughs) um i knew that maria had pitched uh, a death match uh to the producers and to greg uh on the documentary and i knew that they were very intrigued you know because it's a spectacle to watch and you know and uh they wanted to film something like that and so i was i i knew that if uh two things motivated me one was if uh i knew the angst the real personal angst between haley and maria i could always sense it and 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 part of me i honestly was hoping that if they could kind of play some of that out in the ring, it would be cathartic and it might help them. And it genuinely, it has, hmm. uh, which is awesome. They're, you know, they have a much better relationship now. Um, the, uh, and the other part was that because I knew it was really there underneath the surface, uh, I take an old Jerry Jarrett quote, which is you tell the audience enough of the truth, they'll believe any lie. So, I knew it was there and I knew I could build it. And I knew that if you have children, anyone can relate to it. Then so if I have Haley go out there and start acting out and going over the top with her behavior, kind of like a bratty child acting out and that her mom is trying to rein her in for her own protection, you know, for Haley's benefit, the audience would get that. They would know that. And, and I knew that they would buy into it and it would be an easy sell. The other part of it though, was, I know, but this, I knew hey, Maria wanted to do this dumb death match thing. And I thought, well, I'm not going to let her go somewhere else and do it somewhere else where I can't control it and make it as good as possible. You know, it, it if I leave it up to her and I leave it up to the, you know, wherever else they go, it's just going to be a bunch of stunts and a lot of ridiculous ultra violence and there'll be no emotion. There won't be any story, but if I can direct it and I can now use it to get emotion out of an audience, because my goal is every, that's the beauty and the art of professional wrestling is everything that we do is I'm always working to a moment to one mm-hmm. moment. If I'm wrestling a match, as I walk through the curtain, I'm more, everything I do from walking through that curtain is to work to that one moment at the end. If I'm telling a, an angle, a story on TV, the minute I started, I'm, I know I'm trying to get this particular moment. For Aunt Maria and Haley was when I, I knew I get Haley to walk back in that ring and hug her mother, that audience was gonna cry. 
I knew it. And I was like, oh, and that's that's what I want. I want, I want to watch these people in tears, you know, when they hug. And and they did. I made them cry, you know, because uh, I told Haley, I said, you, you, you beat your mom. I want you to just, I now I want you to now, I want to see the remorse start to play out and the regret that you, what, you, you know, you got caught up in the match. And like Maria, for Maria, I was telling Maria, you're her mother. Cause she's like, oh, I'm going to kick her ass. I go, no, you're not. No, you're not. It's going, you're going to be reluctant and she's going to have to keep going and going and going until you finally have to do it because you just have no choice. I said, because if you go out there and just beat her up, there's not a parent in this building that's going to go, oh, I'd have done that. So that's not the way this works. Yeah. I said, you know, you do it because you have to do it. I said, that's the difference. Now they'll believe. And I said, when you beat her, Haley, you got to stop and stand there and and let people wonder what's going to happen and then slowly walk back in the ring, help your mother up and hug her. I said, that's when you're going to get them. That's where they're going to cry. Wow. I said, trust yeah. me. And everything I did every single week was just to will, work to that one moment. Yeah. And, and it's all, all of them are. And it's also, you can argue that it's the ephemeral story of revenge, because ultimately what I think she learns that with enough revenge, you still don't get satisfaction. And when she finally got the victory, she was, this is, you know, obviously my interpretation. I think the thinking was like, okay, wow. Like, but what's actually changed? What have I actually done with this? And that's when I think the remorse can kind of seep in because I think the thinking is once there's so much rage, there's not a sense of rationality there. And then once the rage kind of subsides and you could kind of see what, you know, what's going on and what the situation was, now there's a level of empathy that can develop which i really appreciated about that empathy uh, that ending well and that's again that's the beauty of and what makes wrestling professional wrestling so unique is that every time you're out there no matter what you're doing you're always trying to create that one singular moment and the beauty of it all is is that it only exists in that moment with that particular audience Never, it will never again exist in the same way in the same fashion as it does in that one moment. Even if you film it and you watch it back, it won't be the same experience. Even if you're watching it on TV and you're not there live, it won't be the same experience. You know, it only lives just in that moment. And so that's what I love so much about, you know, what we do and what, and, and I really have grown to appreciate that. You know, so, you know, you know, that's what makes it, I feel like, you know, you're talking about the bloodline, you know, I try to tell stories to some degree or another with everyone. And I think that every single wrestling match needs to tell a story, even mm -hmm. if it's nothing more than the story of one trying to compete against the other. And, you know, and we get to watch that unfold where we get to either root on one or rant against the other that might eventually win the match but there, mm -hmm. i believe that there always has to be a story told in every single match and unfortunately because of the fact that that like i mentioned earlier you know talent are so intent on selling what not who and why there aren't very many stories being told anymore at all
Yeah, and the, you, with your company, there's a level of character development. I mean, obviously, we've already said it, but it's worth reiterating that you don't really see elsewhere. And so, when you had in this in the scene of the show, when you had this uh, kind of interaction with Haley, or she's trying to get into the WWE AEW, where she ultimately ends up going to Wow. You know, in the if you're just looking at it on the surface, there's the sense like, oh, you know, well, of course, Al is going to try to keep his talent there. I mean, you know, it's his livelihood. But then, as the show kind of goes on, you also get the sense that no, but the reason why these people should probably at least stay there for a little bit longer because Al is the one who actually knows how to develop their characters. He actually knows how to make them great wrestlers. Whereas, like, let's say if they go to AEW or wherever else, I mean, they could be on the shelf for a little bit. Maybe they'll be used a little, you know, kind of more, more or less sporadically. But for the most part, there's not going to be this level of attention that you would give them. And that's what I loved so much about the show. I would say that's the thing I love the most about the show is your level of mentorship. And I'm sure you got that from the Tough Enough days where there's this sense that, okay, if this person is my trainer, if this person is the owner of the company that I'm working for, I know he's going to put 100% into not just me, not into my character, but also getting me over with the audience. So yeah, it's kind of, it's now looking at it, it's sort of hard to figure out like, okay, do I go for sort of the big bucks in the WWE or do I stay at this place where I really feel like I'm a part of a bigger family? Well, I, um, I make mention of it uh, on the, in, on the, the series. Uh, yeah. And I mentioned it earlier, you know, the way that I was brought into this business was that I was a reflection of the on the person who brought me in. They put their name on me. The guy that brought me into this business put my his name on me. And we have a in the business we call him. You know that I'm his kid. I'm a 60 year old man, <laughs> but older. You know the older generation of wrestlers still. Hey, that's uh, Jim Lancaster's kid, Al Snow. That because he was responsible for me, and whatever I did was a reflection on him and his reputation and his name. And I still view this very much as that, as each and every one of these people are a reflection on my reputation and my what I'm going to leave behind in the business. And I've worked for, you know, 41 years to make a name and a reputation. And I have a very good one. I'm not bragging, I do. And, I'm, and I have a lot of respect in the business. And I'm not going to let any one of these people ruin that. And I, I'm very, you know, not in a magnanimous way. I'm very invested in their success. I want them to go to WWE. I want them to go to AEW. I don't want them to go when they're not prepared. I don't want to go want them to go when they're not ready because, uh, let's face facts, they're probably only going to get one opportunity. Not like I, I had a bunch of opportunities. Nowadays, you know, the the mindset's completely different. And we'll find another one. It don't matter, mm-hmm. you know. And so I want when they go to be so prepared and so able to stand out from the the rest of the crowd and have such a value to that company as an actual star and attraction, they can't deny them, you know, and uh, because otherwise if they go too soon, they go when they're not ready or they go when they're too immature or they go before they really truly understand how to work a wrestling match and how to really capitalize on that platform that they'll be given, then they're just pissing up a rope. That's all. And then all that does yeah. is ruin my reputation and ruins my success rate. And I'm, I'm, you know, I, you know, the most valuable thing in life, quite honestly, the most valuable thing you have is your name. That's mm-hmm. it. You can all, I, I can, and I explain this to, you know, my other business partners and stuff like that. Uh, you know, have put money into the company. Good. We've all, I put my own money into the company. I don't give a shit about the money. Mm. I could go make more money. 
I ain't going to get another name. I'm 60. So I ain't going to have another 41 years to build another one. Right. So that means this is all because at the end of the day, I'm the one that's got the biggest risk. Why? Yeah. Well, because yeah. if the Netflix thing went tits up, if, if Greg didn't work his magic, none of the other owners are going to hear anything about it. I will. I'll still be in the wrestling business and other veteran wrestlers will take me to task for what was represented on that show. Right. Thank God they all thought it was amazing and loved it and thought it was a positive. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I'm the only one that if, if we, if OVW succeeds, we succeed. If OVW fails, well, the headline is going to be Al Snow took a, you know, took OVW right in the shitter. Not, not, not uh, Matt Jones, not Craig Greenberg, not Jeff Toblin, not Chad Miller, not Joe Reeves, just me. That's it. So, you know, um, and, and that's why I'm, I am so invested in the company. And that's why I'm so invested in these people because I, I truly want, well, also because genuinely, I just really want them to succeed. Nothing would make me happier than watch them all succeed. Same time though. Yeah, it, for professional reasons, uh, I need them to succeed because if they don't sure. succeed, then I now if they suck, I suck, and, yeah. and I've spent too much time to get to this point to suck. <laughs> so, I ain't gonna happen. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of going back to multiple opportunities, so I want to actually pivot back to your career. So now you end up back in the WWF, you're Al Snow. So the WWF and whatever, WWE. So the audience mm -hmm. at the time, even though it was the Attitude Era, it was still a yeah. distinct kind of fan base from ECW and what you were getting from the Al Snow slash head character. So when you went back and obviously Vince loved, I'm assuming Vince loved the idea of Al Snow and head. Was there ever a fear that you wouldn't connect with their audience? No. No, I never, never was worried about that. Um, and I did, you know, just did fine. I just didn't identify or utilize the platform for what it really was. And that was, you know, uh, you know, and I try to teach that now, you know, like I try to explain to all of these, all the talent, I don't make you a star. Vince McMahon does not make you a star. Okay. Certain, you know, there's a couple particular talents he might take a certain interest in. You know, but really, ultimately, at the end of the day, he creates a platform for you to go out and then you go out and create your magic in the ring and make yourself an attraction. Mm -hmm. And then he then, with the two of you, will capitalize on what you've created to then draw money. Right. You know, and at the time, you know, I had lost sight of that understanding that that when I walk through that curtain, my job is not to wrestle. My job is to use wrestling to sell myself to you and get you to buy my product, buy me, be motivated to want to watch me, be motivated to, you know, uh, to, to show up in a building because that really is a wrestler's job. Wrestler's job isn't to wrestle. Wrestler's job is not to have a great match. Wrestler's job is to literally go, if, if, if you're on TV, it is the minute you walk through that curtain to prevent anyone at home from turning the channel, right? motivating them to sit and watch. You're now competing for the most valuable resource on earth. That's attention. And you can get it really easy and you can lose it even easier. 
And you've, when you get it, you've got to now capitalize on it. You've got to sell it and, um, and keep it, you know, cause I, uh, the way I explained to the, to the guy, the young guys and girls here is like, okay, if you're at home and you're watching, you're watching you, you walk out on the stage, you walk to the ring. Who do you have to be? How much of a person personality do you have to be uh, that it would take you not turning the channel, hmm. you know, to stay interested. Now, when the, when the match starts, what do you have to do? How much do you have to do? How much personality do you have to show? How much charisma, how much do you have to turn you up to keep you from turning the channel? Hmm. If we go to commercial break, how much is it going to take to keep you there during the commercial to want to re-engage and watch when we return? How much is it going to take to motivate you to tune in next week? Here's where it really gets hard. Yeah. Okay. Because this is the real difference maker. How much is it going to take to motivate you to tune in every week to then motivate you to leave the comfort, safety, and security of your home, get in your car, drive to a building, pay money to park your car, which is ridiculous, and then pay a large amount of money to get into a building to sit in an uncomfortable seat around people you don't want to sit around, to pay for food you don't want to eat, to watch you do your job. Because that ultimately is what you are supposed to be doing. And I mean, because the movie actor, Tom Cruise does not, Dwayne The Rock Johnson does not get paid to act. Arnold Schwarzenegger never got paid to act because if he did, he had certainly got overpaid because he was terrible. Mm -hmm. He got paid... <laughs> And they get paid because you will leave your house and drive to a movie theater to pay to see them do their job. That's why movie actors are held in higher esteem than television actors, because it takes so little investment on the audience's part to watch the television actor do his job as opposed to what the movie actor does, which is to literally motivate you to move, leave your home. That takes right. a lot. That's a hard, hard job. And mm -hmm. if you don't understand that, like I did at that time, I was going out there to wrestle. I'm going to be a great wrestler. But I should have been going out there to motivate you to leave your house to see me more yeah. and more. Because I did it when I was in ECW and I understood that and that's why it worked. And that's what got me the opportunity to go back. And then I lost focus, and which was my own fault. But that's yeah. what I now, I teach based on those mistakes to the talent here, you know, and really try to communicate that, that they have such even more so now because of the Netflix opportunity, they have even more of an opportunity than ever to really, you know, capture an audience and do what they all are dreaming of doing, which is being able to do professional wrestling at, for a living and not have to work some other job, you know, yeah. and that's really the goal. That should be their goal, you know, is to just be able to do this for a living and nothing else. And then if they continue to be an attraction, doesn't matter, like Cash, you know, everybody talking, well, Cash is 40-some years old. Yeah, so what? If they believe in WWE that he can fit a role that will draw them money, guess what he's going to get an opportunity to do? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's yeah. going to get a chance to go do that. If he can prove that he can do it on this level, they know he'll be able to do it on that level, you know? Because back in the day, and I, you know, when I was head, heading up the developmental program for WWE, it, I understood 
even when the talent didn't, that if they were in developmental, they were not in developmental for me to teach them to wrestle. I can. I mean, I, you know, I, I spent years in the wrestling business around, you know, uh, very adept shooters and hookers. I was taught by Al Costello, you know, catch wrestling. I have literally forgotten more switches, reversals, takedowns, pinning combinations, submission, you name it. I've forgotten it than people would even imagine. That don't draw money. Mm -hmm. What draws money is learning how to be a star, learning how to be an attraction. And I don't teach based on what I know. I teach on where I made those mistakes to where I could have been an even bigger star than I was. Yep. Simply because I didn't identify those opportunities at the time when it would have taken me in the direction it would have. And that, right. you know, that gives me a, a leg up on everybody else. Because now yeah. I, I, you know, started in the territories, had success, became the best kept secret in wrestling, which hmm. was because no one could describe me. I was just, I was really good in the ring. Just yeah. how do you sell me? And then went to WWF where they tried to come up with a persona or something. I just left Smoky Mountain as a smart ass chicken shit heel. Go to WWF and they're, you know, they're trying to give me, uh, uh, you know, give me a, a persona, a character, a pers you know, something that they can sell me with to an audience. And, you know, and that's why I kind of floundered. I, if I knew then what I know now, the avatar character would have, would have been a completely different foray. If I knew then what I know now, I mean, I don't know what much I could have done with Leaf Cassidy to change it because Marty rightfully, you know, uh, didn't, his heart wasn't in it because he did, he felt like it was kind of a knock on what he and Sean had done and, you know, didn't really, you know, care for it you know but then you know when marty left and i i started becoming a lot more aggressive and changing my look and things like that and not being so uh, uh, rocker type that they had given us direction to do in the first place um it, you know i was starting to get opportunities from that and then you know then it went off the rails you know what i mean so yeah, yeah. uh you know so yeah i i've you know identified and I don't regret those mistakes. They they were necessary. Yeah, there is no Al Snow. I mean, essentially, without Leaf Cassidy. And so, as sure. we now be, as we now begin to wrap up, you know, the thinking here is that we have a large fan base for the WWE, a large fan base for AEW. So, what would you want wrestling fans to know about OVW and its future? Uh, you know, I th think what I want people, the fans, to know about OVW is is that um, it is, you know, it's it's professional wrestling it's i'm not trying to sell you uh something new i'm not trying to sell you something different mm. what i'm what i'm selling you is something that you can watch and be entertained by and relate to and you can believe you can you know uh, they, it is acceptable i'm never going to insult you i'm never going to rub it in your face I'm never going to make you feel dumb for enjoying or believing in professional wrestling. That was what kayfabe was. It was a respect for you, the audience. That's all it was. Contrary to the popular belief, <coughs> people at least in North America, in the United States, have known that professional wrestling was predetermined since the 1940s. Mm -hmm. This has not came out just recently. There's yeah. some major expose 
everyone has known for decades that wrestling is predetermined. Yeah. Why has, you know, have audiences continued for decades? And I'm not talking again, the big misnomer, all these goofy idiots come up with, oh, it's just for kids, really. I want you to go on YouTube and I want you to go to any era since television started. And I want you to tell me what you see as far as an audience is concerned, even to this day, 98% of it are adults. Yeah. 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 In the 50s, 98% were adults. In the 60s, 98% adults. And anytime, and this goes for any live event, whether it's wrestling, boxing, sport, sporting events, you name it. You want to know when they're really making money? Look in the audience and see how many women are in attendance. Mm -hmm. Grown adult women. Yeah. Okay? So go back, watch those wrestling events. Now tell me. And no, we didn't just start selling out baseball stadiums for wrestling events with the advent of WWE. You can go back on YouTube and watch, uh, you know, Pat O'Connor defending the NWA World Heavyweight Championship against Buddy Rogers in 1961 at Kaminsky Park in front mm -hmm. of 38,000 people. Yeah. That were all, mo the majority, 98% were adults, you know? So, you know, kayfabe was simply a respect to where we never insulted you we always gave we always allowed you to get what we sold you i'm selling you that i was i was i was crazy and i really believe the head was oh uh, you know something i interacted with well uh that meant and it was uncomfortable a lot of times but a lot of times you know i would go into restaurants bring the head with me, set them on the table, be talking and arguing, order two meals. I'd be asked to leave a lot of times because we'd make the other customers uncomfortable, things like mm -hmm. that. But now on Monday, two weeks from there, you, you, you're at home and all of a sudden I come out on TV and you're like, holy crap, hey, sweetheart, come in here. Look, that's that lunatic from the restaurant. Now you believe in me. right? And I never did anything to insult that belief by not being the person that you saw and that's kayfabe yeah you know it's 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 not like you know actors because they you know are playing a character they don't have to be that character all the time but as a wrestler i have to sell you me and then i've got to be that guy anytime i'm in public to some degree i've got to be that guy you yeah. know because yeah. if a dog you're like ah well now i can't believe in him well, i can't believe in what he does that's no fun to go watch yeah and so and my final thought as we begin to wrap up is going to be so when i was a kid the two most inspiring wrestlers and my favorite wrestlers were Shawn michaels and kevin nash but now as i've grown up i would say pretty pretty certain about this uh so the two most inspiring wrestlers to me especially from a business perspective uh from a maturity standpoint are jeff jarrett and al snow by far you, you the both <laughs> of you man yeah you're welcome man so both of you so your show uh jeff jarrett's pod we so we've had jeff on the podcast before so yeah. jeff's podcast yeah so from just from everything your wisdom them from a business perspective, from what works from a communal perspective in terms of teamwork. You guys are pretty much everything that I aspire to be as, again, as a business owner, as a friend, as a community member, leader, whatever. So again, Al, thank you so much for coming on. This was just phenomenal. Oh, 
I'm so happy to meet you. Uh, so I remember, yeah. by the way, I was at ECW one night stand and I remember you. Oh, really? the yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the best, one of the top three nights of my life. So I remember the, yeah. the, 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 the promo that you did with head. And I remember yeah. just thinking like, oh my God, man, if I could meet one of these guys one day and you know, here we are. And I'm like, just, I'm just in awe of you, man. I'm so inspired. Just such an amazing show, man. Thank you so much well, for everything you. that you do. Uh, okay. Well, I appreciate it. And of course, you know, obviously I, I want to ask, you know, if we wanted to follow you and follow what's going on with OVW, uh, how, yeah. how can we do that? Uh, you can follow me on social media at the real Al Snow. Um, there, there are some people that fake be me. And if you are <laughs> one of those people, I'll just message you and go like, come on, aim the bar higher. I mean, really, <laughs> yeah. I'd be Brad Pitt or George Clooney or somebody, you know, Al Snow ain't going to get you over. So <laughs> Uh, but the real Al Snow on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Uh, it, oh, if you're interested in OBW, you can go to obwrestling.com. Uh, we're on uh, the Fight TV app every Thursday night, live, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, outside of WWE and AEW, we're the only other company, I think, that does yeah. live television. Uh, and, um, if you're interested in, uh, OVW Academy, you can go to ovwacademy.com as well. You can find more information there. Um, and, uh, I can't thank everybody enough for their support, uh, with wrestlers. Um, we're wait, we're still waiting to see if we're going to get a season two. Yeah. Uh, oh, you know, cool. uh, please tell your friends and family, spread the word, yeah. to watch it, uh, you know, and, and, uh, uh, on social media, just put hashtag wrestlers Netflix to show your support. Um, uh, be forever grateful. Yeah. And also you guys have the Seize the Moment podcast endorsement. I would say it's one of the probably top two, top three documentary series I've ever seen. Definitely of the year. I would say so there's a documentary series that just came out called Dear Mama about Tupac's life. You guys are literally right there, man. Neck and neck. Oh, just pheno phenomenal, phenomenal stuff. Al, thank yeah. you again so much for coming on, man. This was stellar. Again, so grateful to have met you. We'll talk to you soon, man. Thanks, All right. Man. Take care. Bye. Okay. All right. How did that feel? Phenomenal, man. I can't fucking else know. <laughs> All right. Well, everyone, uh, you know where to follow us. You can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. On Twitter, where it sees underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.